Good mo whoa, ho. I apologize for that. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lakes Free Church, and I hope I didn't blast anybody's speakers out at home with that uh, welcome today. Well, thanks so much for joining us for worship. We're so excited to be together this morning, and it's always great to come and worship, sing God's praises, and uh, study his word and be encouraged with his truth. And so we're praying that that will be the case for all of us this morning. Uh, if we haven't uh, met, my name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here today. And uh, again, just so thankful you're with us. And want to say hello to all of you watching at home today. Thank you for joining us online. And we pray that you will be blessed and encouraged uh, by your participation with us as well. Well, we're going to commit this morning to the Lord and uh, ask his blessing upon our worship. So uh, let's do this. I'm going to have you stand for prayer this morning. And then our worship team is going to lead us in some great songs of, of praise, worship, and thanksgiving as we uh, give, uh, give honor and glory to the Lord today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your many blessings. And today, Lord, we commit this morning to you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified as we gather together as your people to praise your name, to lift your name on high. And, uh, and Lord, we want you to get all the honor, glory, and praise today. For those of us here, Lord, coming into your presence together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray that we would encounter you this morning. We pray that you would bless our hearts as we enter your presence and sing your praises. We pray, God, that uh, whatever needs we're wrestling with in our lives, whatever challenges, concerns we're working through today, Lord, that uh, this morning would be just an awesome opportunity for us to uh, be encouraged, uh, be inspired, and to once again be reminded of who you are and your great faith, your amazing grace, and your awesome love. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We praise your name. And uh, be blessed now as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, I wanted to share a couple words with you this morning as we move into our next song. I've been working on this project at, works for, at work for the last couple months, and it was kind of nearing its end. But you know how you, when you work on a project, that pressure starts to really build up, and you start getting really stressed and a little bothered. <clears throat> and of course, when you're feeling all of that pressure, it's just when Satan decides to slip in doubt, situations that will you know, be used in those times to really kind of break down those walls or find those cracks in those walls that you have. And I was reaching that point where I was ready to just completely lash out. And then fast forward to this Sunday as I was preparing for this Sunday. And as most of you know, a lot of this music gets picked out ahead of time. And I was going over the sermon this week and thinking about this next song that we're gonna sing called Be Still and Know. And I'm often reminded by the Holy Spirit that he uses these times to really work in my life. And so I hope that this will be an encouragement to you too. I wanna read from Psalm 46. And I'll have it up on the screen so you can follow along or read along with me. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth and he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And even in my doubt this week, he was still faithful and he will still be faithful now. Still my soul, the Lord is on our side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide in every change.
thank you for this morning we thank you for the gift of your son that allows us to have eternal life with you in heaven we just thank you for the many blessings and the faithfulness that you show us each and every day we just ask that you would bless this message this morning as pastor Stephen directs us in your word we just thank you for this time and we thank you for this morning in your holy and precious name amen you may be seated morning. So I got to, uh, when I was in college, I got to spend a number of summers working out at a Christian camp, which if you ever have that opportunity to work at a Christian camp, I can't, can't more highly recommend. It was, it was an amazing opportunity in my life. Lots of, uh, lots of great opportunities for ministry and prayer and connecting with others and just spiritual growth. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about working out at camp, aside, of course, from, from, from all of the uh, opportunities that God provided in that realm, uh, was working with the high ropes course. 
I loved working with high ropes course. I liked rock climbing. I liked being up there. Um, the, the camp that I worked at, it was a camp in Texas, Sky Ranch Camp. Um, at that point in time, they had the longest multi-man zip line in the state of Texas. So it was, it was huge. It was awesome. It was phenomenal. Um, and it was always so much fun. I worked with middle school students. It was always so much fun to see these middle school students strap on these harnesses and then say, wait, you want me to do What? You, you want me to jump off this platform? It seems like we're like 200 feet in the air. How, and not genuinely, obviously, 200 feet. But, uh, but they're like, how in the world do you expect us to jump off this platform and to trust this harness? It was amazing. You know, you, you would sit there, like I had my harness on, and so I would show them, like, no, really, this can hold my weight. This is good. This is secure. Do you have any idea how many campers have already been here this summer? Do you realize how old the harnesses are that you're using? Well, no, you don't usually emphasize that point. <laughs> but look at all the other people that have done it already. They all weigh, weigh. I mean, you're a, you're a middle school student. You're tiny still. Like, you have nothing to be worried about. You have every reason in the world to trust that this harness will hold you and that you'll be fine. And yet at the same time, and we all know the feeling, probably many of us have experienced that feeling as well, there's this fear and there's this doubt that's in there, this seed of doubt that uh, makes it so difficult. And then every once in a while you, you, you end up with a student who almost just freezes up there, just unable to move forward, right? And then you try to work with them, you try to coax them, you try to reassure them, and sometimes they end up going, which is always such a thrill. And sometimes they end up not going, and you tell them, that's fine, maybe, maybe next year. Or maybe we'll even have another, another opportunity later on this week. Doubt. Doubt is an easy thing to slip into our minds. We don't always know where it comes from. We don't always know why it's there. But I think we all experience it in various realms. David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Group, a well-known research and, um, and polling group, research firm, um, they conducted a study of 18 to 29-year-olds, asking them to describe their church experience, faith, and upbringing. And Kinneman, after all of his research and kind of looking at this, at this age bracket, came to the conclusion that, at least per his estimations, about 60 to 80% of those who had been raised in the church in kind of those mid-20 years were stepping away from the church and no longer wanted to be identified either with the church or with Christian faith in general. And one of the major contributing factors to that was doubt. It was doubts. They, they had had experiences in their upbringing in the church where they had had what they felt to be significant doubts and then for whatever reason didn't feel the opportunity to be able to communicate those or when they did communicate those doubts, they didn't feel like those were received well within a church context. And so they began looking for new routes, new ways, new ways to understand this world that, was, that allowed them to reconcile their doubts. We've begun a new series entitled, You Lost Me. You Lost Me, looking at different, uh, different challenges that Christianity and the church face in our, in our post-Christian culture that we live in. This morning, we're going to address specifically the topic of, is the church unsafe for doubters? Is the church unsafe for doubters? How, 
How is the church responding to those struggling with doubts? I, I suspect, based on some of the statistics and numbers that I looked at this morning, or sorry, not this morning, or over the past week, I, I suspect that there are many here this morning who are struggling themselves with various forms of doubt even now, who are struggling. Or if you're not struggling now in this moment, you certainly will at some point in the future. So how, as a church, are we responding? Is the church unsafe for doubters? As we kind of proceed our way through the topic this morning, we'll begin by looking at an anatomy of doubt, and then we'll move on to address an answer, an answer to doubt. How do we respond? But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to address such a significant topic, Lord, and certainly not a topic that you have been mute to. Certainly, this is a topic that you have spoken into with your word. So, Lord, I pray that our ears would be open this morning, not to my words, but to your words. Father, that your spirit would be working in our context to convict our hearts and to draw us to a greater understanding of what you have called us to as your people and as a church. Lord, for those who are struggling with doubts, I pray that you would provide an avenue, a clear avenue that would draw people to yourself and to your beauty and to your majesty. Please give rest to those who are weary. Father, please just work during this time. We pray this through your Son, by your Spirit. Amen. So the nature of doubt is a complicated thing, and it, become, and it can become very philosophical very quickly. Pastor Jason asked me to speak on this topic, and I began reading on it, and I quickly became overwhelmed. Um, there has been a lot written in, in the past thousand years alone on doubt, and, uh, and I can read a very small fraction of it. Um, so... So where do we go with doubt? I mean, even just the word doubt probably elicits very different expectations about what this sermon is going to be about this morning, right? Is this sermon about doubting salvation? Or is this, is this a sermon specifically for those who have left the faith? Or is this sermon about, well, I, I don't know, you fill in the blank, to get our moorings and to find some direction forward, I think it's appropriate that we go back, that we go back to the beginning. So we're going to begin by looking at Genesis this morning. We're going to look at Genesis. Specifically, we'll look at chapter 3. And uh, hopefully as we delve into chapter 3, as we go back, it will give us some direction on how we can move forward. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, kind of the setup, I, I presume most of us are pretty familiar with this, but the, in the very beginning, God has created all things Right? He has created all things, and all of his creation is very good. He has created first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, and he has placed them in the Garden of Eden, and they have everything that they could possibly need to flourish and to be happy, to enjoy the good life. They have it all. God has provided everything that they could ask for. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3, and of course, we find the end of their bliss Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, just the first half of verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. All right, so many of you are asking already, if this is such a perfect garden, why is there a snake in my garden? If there's a snake there, this place can't be all that great, right? 
Um, there, there is a snake, and God indeed had made the snake, and we know that God made all things good in the very beginning. We also know, thanks to the re- later revelation of Scripture, thanks to the revelation, later revelation of Scripture, this wasn't just any normal snake, but this was actually Satan himself who had crept his way into the garden. Satan was there because he had a devious plan in mind. He was going to do something significant to hurt the work of God that he had begun, and specifically by attacking man and woman. So uh, the passage tells us that the serpent is more crafty than any other, than any of the other beasts that the Lord had made. So already we are getting a sense that something negative is about to happen. Verse one continues, the snake approaches the woman and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The snake challenges Eve. Now this first challenge that the serpent makes concerning God is specifically targeting God's word. Did God really say that? Notice how he does it. He, he takes what God had told Adam back in chapter 2, verse 17. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, God had given a command to Adam. He takes this command and he twists it to make God sound radically harsh and restrictive. He makes him sound almost mean. Now, if you go back to 2.17, God had told Adam that he could enjoy every tree of the garden. But notice what the serpent did. The serpent only focused on what he couldn't do. But really, what God had said, you can enjoy every tree of the garden, and then provided one singular exception. It's also worth noting at this point that in Satan's deception, in his, uh, in his challenge, he's changed the name of God here. Up until this point in time in your Bible, it had been calling God the Lord God. The Lord there, when it's written in all caps like that, all capital letters, that, that's another way of, a, of our English text representing the Hebrew name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. Up until this, t- this point in time, God had been represented as being personal and being relational. Satan is slowly distancing God by using only the name Elohim for God. He's making him seem less relational. So even now, the serpent subtly begins to sow this new concept into Eve's mind that maybe their good creator, maybe their good creator who had done good things for them was really actually a restrictive and harsh and relationally aloof God. Maybe he wasn't so good after all. She responds in verses two through three, The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The woman responds appropriately. She pushes back against his temptation, almost quoting 2.17, but with some suggestive changes. She notes that they may eat the fruit of the trees, but she doesn't say it quite as strongly as God himself had said it. God had said every tree, right? God says it more strongly when when he says it. She also adds an extra command that God had never given them. She notes that they, she and Adam, aren't to even touch the tree in the midst of the garden. Well, God hadn't actually made that suggestion. So she actually 
goes a further step and makes God seem a little more restrictive than what he actually was. Also note here that she's following Satan's lead. Notice what she refers to the Lord God as. Only God here. Again, all the way up until this point in time, it had been the Lord God, but now the language transitions to just being God. It's subtle, but even Eve's response could be read as kind of a gradual acquiescence to the serpent's narrative of a harsh and distant God. Verses verses 4 to 5, Satan sees his opportunity and continues to cast seeds of doubt with a second challenge. He reads, But the serpent said to, to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent's second challenge, then, is directed against God's word and his character. While his first challenge was subtle, and it was expressed almost through kind of a surprised curiosity, like, did, did he really say this, really? Almost a surprised curiosity, this second challenge is direct. He claims that God's words and his promises are wrong. Adam and Eve would not die. He's basically claiming that God's word isn't even trustworthy. And God's word isn't trustworthy because ultimately, God himself is not good. That's at the core of his claim here. You can't trust God's word because God himself isn't trustworthy. He isn't good. He claims that God is fearful of others becoming like him. Originally portraying God as harsh and restrictive, now God is portrayed as not being good. He's conniving. He's fearful. And for the first time, woman doubts God's goodness. And she doubts his motivations. She proceeds to look at the fruit, and she saw that it was good, and she trusted her own powers of discernment instead of God. She made herself the authority. She made herself the arbiter. She made herself the one who could accurately judge what was good and what was right for her. She saw the fruit, and it was delightful to her, and so she ate, right? And I think we largely all know the fallout of that. Now, there are many different types of doubt, as I've already said, that we could address this morning. The word is used broadly, though all doubts kind of have a common core and kind of have a common source behind them that's rooted in our human condition. Doubt ultimately comes from us being human, specifically in two regards. It comes from two places in our human nature. The first is our limited nature. We are finite beings. We just don't understand everything. We are limited to a particular place and a particular time, and we don't have a global understanding of everything else. We don't know all things, and we certainly don't understand all things. We are limited beings, and this automatically raises questions for us that's not necessarily a bad thing. The second thing is that we are sinful, we are sinful because of this, because of this original sin that our, that our parents took part in, that Adam and Eve took part in, we now also are in sin. The things that we understand, the things that we see, our faculties have been perverted so that we don't see things rightly. 
we see things marred. Now we see things through sin-colored lenses that corrupt, that change how we understand the way the world works around us. Now these different types of doubts then that we can experience are largely a mixture of these kind of two factors. So someone could have doubts or questions about Christianity or God and such doubt might come more from a place of ignorance or curiosity, wanting to know more because again, we are limited beings. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to have questions. It's good to wrestle with these sorts of things. Sometimes, unfortunately, questions are discouraged in Christian contexts. And instead, people will talk about how we just need to have a simple faith in such a way as to mean that we need to discourage deeper thinking, which I think can really be a travesty to someone's spiritual growth. Questions can be a major source of growth for someone. I became a Christian as a young adult, and I remember I was filled with questions, all sorts of questions, ranging from, 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 from doubts to curiosities, but I was just full of questions. And I remember, uh, thankfully, I was rooted in a solid church that really desired to tackle those questions and really desired to raise up mentors who were willing to kind of walk through those things. But I do remember on one occasion where I went to one individual in the church and I was just kind of wrestling. He was a small group leader. And I, and I asked him the question and he immediately shot me down and told me that it was an immature question and that I just needed to trust more. And I remember walking away from that interaction totally blindsided because I didn't feel like my question came from a bad place. I felt like it was a very genuine question of trying to understand God better. But here this, this older, more mature believer had just told me that it was actually a mark of my immaturity. Not really sure. Not really sure what to do. I went and I asked someone else, uh, who was thankfully far far more helpful. And uh, and I remembered not to go back to that brother again for questions like that. I'd go to him for other things because he was still a he was still a brother who loved the Lord. But uh, but my questions didn't go to him anymore. They went someplace else. And asking questions like that and wrestling through things like that were a major source of growth for me. On the other hand, sometimes people will express doubts, but they aren't real doubts. They aren't real doubts because the asker has already made up their mind on what they feel the answer is. They're not genuinely seeking answers anymore. Thus, their doubts are a little bit more disingenuous, either acting as kind of barbs that they're trying to frustrate other people with or, or potentially just a way of avoiding personal conviction. Now, both forms of these doubt would be good for discussion. And certainly these, these various forms of doubt aren't wholly distinct from, another, from one another. There's a significant amount of overlap in what they mean and how we address them and such. But this isn't, this isn't the sort of doubt I really want to focus on this morning. I want to focus more on what we see in Genesis 3, which, again, isn't wholly distinct from the others. This isn't a doubt in God's existence. Eve knows that God exists, right? There's no question in Eve's mind whether or not there is a God. Eve knows he exists. This is a doubt about God's goodness and God's faithfulness to his word. That's the sort of doubt we see Eve wrestling with. This isn't usually caused by a lack 
of belief. Rather, it's a belief in counter-beliefs. So, for instance, with Eve, we don't see her lacking belief, but rather we see a contest of belief. She's believing different things. She ultimately believed that she was more reliable to make her own decisions than God. She doubted his goodness and thus his reliability. And so she made herself authoritative over him, acting according to what she felt was best. Adam did similarly. Adam followed suit, doubting God's goodness and relying instead on his own assessment of what his greatest good would be. And then he acted accordingly. This is my greatest good, so I need to do this, this, and this. We see this theme played out not just in Adam and Eve, but we see it in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. We see it happen over and over again in God's people. God's people have a long track record of doubt. We're really good at doubting. It's very impressive. We shouldn't pat ourselves too quickly on the back over that, but it is kind of impressive. Over, despite everything that we've seen and despite everything that he's done, we're really good doubters. Over and over again, people, God's people continue to doubt him. And God continues to graciously come to us with promises rooted in his goodness. We challenge him when we have trials, when we don't understand what's happening. We doubt his wisdom. We doubt the wise plan that he has in place. He, we ask questions like, look at all the things that are going wrong in my life. How can there be a wise God who has a good plan? We doubt his goodness as things continue to unfold against us in life or what we feel to be against us in life. We continue to raise our fist and shake it at him and say, this can't be from the Lord. God can't have a good plan. Or at least that's how we act. We, we, we ask questions like, how could this possibly happen if God's good? We, we doubt his presence. We doubt that he is with us because if he is with us, then how could we feel so alone in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our hardships? But he has promised that he is with us. And we can trust because he is good. All of these are a mix of theological and practical doubts about God's goodness and, and his promises to us. We see them in our first parents, and we certainly see them continuing to work themselves out through church history and through our own lives. Over and over again, we see evidence that the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Pun somewhat intended. So then, how do we respond? How, how do we then respond to those of us struggling in the midst of doubts? Well, there's probably a couple different ways. I want to, I want to address one in particular first because, the, uh, because this was originally framed as, is it safe to be a doubter at church? And I think one thing to, to note quickly about that is kind of the concept of safe. Is it safe? Safe can mean a lot of things, but I, kind of, I want to push back on this idea of safety. I don't think church is supposed to be safe. I don't think church is supposed to be safe, not for doubters and certainly not for anyone else. There is nothing safe about church. If you want safety, go join a country club. If you want safety, go find a group of people who look exactly like you, who think exactly like you, and who only reaffirm the things that you already believe. 
If you want safety, go find some of them. But that's not what you're going to find here. That's not what you're going to find in the church. Rather, in the church, you're gonna find, you're gonna find ministries that are gonna tell your kids about people on the other side of the globe in hostile regions who don't know the gospel. And they're gonna tell your kids about them, and your kids are gonna grow up and maybe wanna be missionaries, and you're gonna wanna go tell those people. And that's not safe, okay? Or potentially... Or potentially, here, sitting in the midst of this congregation this morning, hearing God's word, your heart is going to be convicted. And you're going to go out and you're going to live life a little differently. And again, that's not safe. That's going to lead to hatred. People will hate you. We live in a culture that is hostile to Christianity. If you are convicted by God's word, if you live out God's word, then that won't be safe. You will be hated. Your neighbors might not like you. You might have trouble at work. God's word actually works to divide families. Or do you know that? That's not a safe thing. The church is not a place where we can come and find safety. The church is a place where we come and we see Christ. And there's nothing safe about that. The church is a place where we come to hear God's word. And there's nothing safe about God speaking to us. That's not a safety thing. Hebrews tells us that God's word divides joint and marrow. Does that sound safe to you? That's not safe. This isn't supposed to be a safe place. So no, no, this isn't a safe place for doubters, but it's not a safe place for anyone else either. Come, come here if you want answers. Come here if you want to be in a company of people who also struggle with doubt. Come here if you want to be in a company of those who continue down the road towards our God, which is not a safe road, but it's a good road. So no, I don't think the church is safe for doubters, and I I certainly hope it never becomes a safe place for doubters, or certainly for me. So then how, how is the church to respond to doubters? How does, God's word, how does God's word tell us that we as Christians need to respond in the midst of doubt? What is his answer? Well, let's turn to a different passage to get, to get some direction. Let's look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. I'll read beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And for crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Just kind of a brief summary of what we just read. Father, seeking healing for the demonic influence in his son, has reached out to Jesus and his disciples. His disciples who, mind you, at this point in time, have had a significant amount of experience involved in exercising demons. The disciples give it their best effort, and they fail. This father, who had put so much hope in this opportunity, now, for the, now is cast into doubt, seeing the failure of the disciples. Jesus approaches. He parts the crowds. The Father sees him and sees one last hope, one last opportunity. The Father approaches him. Jesus responds, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The Father contributes more background and finally puts the request forward to Jesus that we find in verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can, if you can, the question begins immediately with doubt. The father expresses doubt that, it, that Jesus is able to exercise this demon. Jesus repeats this qualification, I think with some indignation. If you can, really? I, I like the way the New Living Translation brings this out. What do you mean, if I can? And then Jesus follows it up with this kind of enigmatic statement that all things are possible for the one who believes. Briefly, this statement could easily be misconstrued. Some, some have interpreted it as though a believer can do all things if they just believe enough. That's the way some have interpreted this passage. But I don't think that's the right interpretation for a couple of different reasons. First, that all things are possible there, it shares some of the same language with the previous if you can that's stated, right? If you can, all things are possible. They share some of the same language. Another way to paraphrase it, to really bring out the similarity of these two expressions that might not be all that obvious in English, a way to paraphrase it could be something along the lines of if I can, I can do all things for the one who believes, the point here isn't that the believer is able to do all things, but Jesus, Jesus, the object of faith, he is able to do all things. He can do all things. It wouldn't make sense if at one point we're talking about Jesus' ability and Jesus responds by telling him that it's the believer's ability to do this. It's the believer who can make this happen. Second, while the believer does play an active role in the process through their belief, notice it doesn't say anything here about having enough belief, right? It's missing that key word. It doesn't say anything about, well, you just have to believe so much, or if you have a great enough faith, then this will happen. It doesn't say anything about that. 
Rather, this is, this is small faith. This is just any faith at all. This is mustard-sized um, sized faith. This is an infinitesimal amount of belief. So again, it's not the belief of the believer as much as it's the object believed in. Mustard seed, seed faith isn't about great faith. It's faith in someone great. So Jesus here extends a gracious promise to this broken, doubting father. And the father responds with one of my favorite statements of faith in the New Testament. The father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. The first part of the expression is a, uh, is a conscious decision to believe in the midst of a wavering faith. And the second part is an ultimate expression of faith. It's funny because we, we would read that second part and maybe think that it re- represents a lack of faithfulness. But I think genuinely it's actually a, even a greater expression of faith. Because it throws itself on, the, it throws itself on its face, prostrate before Jesus saying, I need you to do this. A genuine act of faith, it relies on God to do what this father couldn't do on his own. It's a statement that puts all of its trust and all of its hope in Jesus to accomplish this. It is the opposite of someone coming to Jesus saying, no, 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 I've got this. I'm good. I've got this under control. I know what I'm doing here. All right, sorry, Jesus. I I had a slight slight misstep. I get it. But I've got it under control now. Now I've got great faith. I've arrived. It's the opposite of that. This, This is what faith looks like. I believe. Help my unbelief. The Father has doubts, but Jesus is bigger than those doubts. Now, the important point here for our purposes isn't so much this doubting father. Rather, the thing I really want to emphasize is Jesus' reaction here. How does Jesus respond? Barnabas Piper, in a recent book, just came out a few years ago on doubt. He points out three key components in Jesus' response here. Three things that I think are helpful for us. First, Jesus is approachable. He's approachable. Jesus has requested them to bring him the child, right? Jesus, Jesus actually beckoned for him. Jesus doesn't put hurdles in this man's way. There's no demands to believe more. There's nothing like that. Jesus makes himself available for those who are struggling with doubt. He's available. Second, Jesus is compassionate. He's compassionate. He corrects, but he doesn't condemn the man. Right? It's, I, love, I love that both of those elements are there. There's a correction, but it's a gentle correction. He's not condemning the man. Jesus corrects the father because, of course, Jesus is able, but he doesn't just leave the father for his wrong statement. He doesn't turn the father away. He doesn't refuse to do this miracle because of the misstep of the father. Jesus is patient and long-suffering even in the midst of this father's doubt. He is gentle and lowly, and he meets the Father exactly where this Father is at. Third, Jesus provides exactly what this Father needs. He he gives him exactly what he needs to overcome his doubts. In this case, displaying his goodness and his power through an exorcism. 
He gives the Father exactly what he needs. Jesus demonstrates these three postures, not just, not just in this episode. He demonstrates them in other episodes. Think about, for instance, doubting Thomas and Jesus' patient correction to Thomas, while at the same time showing him the holes and the piercings in his own body. Right? He gives him exactly what he needs. Now, this isn't the only way that we see Jesus responding to doubt in the gospel. Certainly there are other ways. As we saw earlier, there are different types of doubt, and these in part stem from different motivations. There's a distinction between how Jesus responds to this father and how Jesus responds to the Pharisees, right? He responds to the Pharisees very differently. But there does seem to be a pattern that when people come with a genuine doubt, with a, I believe, help my unbelief sort of doubt to Jesus, he tends to follow a pattern very similar to this. But there's one more caveat, there's one more point I would like to add specifically to the third point of Jesus providing what we need to overcome doubts. There's one more thing I want to point out about that. Um, in Jesus' ministry, he did this by showing his sufficiency, by showing that he was everything that we needed. For us... This means continuing to point people back to Jesus himself. I call this the Philip principle. And I call it the Philip principle because of a passage back in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46, which we looked at last year. John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46. There, Philip has met Jesus, and he's sharing. He's sharing with doubting Nathaniel about his experience of meeting, of meeting Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, doubting Nathaniel cynically responds, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come on, Philip. Seriously, Nazareth. We're talking about Nazareth here. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Now, if it was me in Philip's position, I would be, I'd be thinking through, okay, what's my argument? How am I gonna respond? Well, uh, I'll tell him, at first, I'll list off all the amazing things that have come out of Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Like, have you thought about this? Like, this came out of Nazareth, this thing. And the, oh, and this thing over here. Or, or I would begin thinking through something along the lines of, Psh, come on, Nathaniel, seriously, that's closed-minded. That's a generalization. You can't actually believe that. Or I begin kind of trying to process through, how am I gonna argue with him? But that's not Philip's response. Rather, we see Philip respond, simply, come and see. Come and see. He invites him to come and to see the Christ himself and to see that genuinely something good can come out of Nazareth. He leads him to Jesus. You see, that's what we all need, isn't it? We all need a come and see. When I'm struggling with doubts, come and see. When others are struggling, come and see. That's what we need. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help people in their doubts or, or that we should ignore our own, but that no response is certainly complete until the come and see has been extended, until, until we've been invited to see the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of Christ himself. In interacting with others, then, let's follow Jesus' basic example. Let's be those who invite people to come and see. Let's be those who are approachable. Let's be those who are, who are compassionate in our responses and provide people exactly what they need. Let's fill that out just a little bit more. 
I'm afraid that so much damage has been done by those Christians who have quickly dismissed the doubts of others or made them feel shameful for struggling with doubts. One has to wonder why, why, what motivation would we have to be so quick to dismiss the doubts of others. I wonder if sometimes we're quick to dismiss them, quick to discourage them, maybe because of our own doubts, maybe because we don't trust God to do what he is going to do in their lives, maybe because we're doubting ourselves. A Christian wrestling to understand God or wrestling to understand the things of God is not necessarily a bad thing. And it might be God's way of bringing that person into a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship and a deeper dependence on who God himself is. That's not necessarily a bad thing for them to wrestle. Bonus, as you continue to talk with them, this might actually help your faith as well. This might actually give you a deeper understanding of God. You might actually be able to learn as you watch someone else wrestle with their own doubts. For those of you who are struggling in the midst of doubts, I would encourage you to approach. We as a church need to be approachable, but uh, doubters, we need, to, we need to be approaching others. Maybe you're struggling with doubts right now and you've put up so many barriers and you're keeping yourselves from sharing with others because you're afraid of their reaction. You're, you're afraid that maybe you'll look dumb. You're, you're afraid that maybe you'll seem spiritually immature. Maybe, potentially, maybe potentially you've even had a negative experience when you've tried to share and now you have scars. And honestly, I'll be honest with you, if you continue to share doubts, you probably will get more scars in the future. Why? Because God's people aren't perfect. Because I'm not perfect. Because none of us are gonna have a perfect response to you every time. But the cost of not sharing, the cost of keeping those to yourself is far more significant than the minor, the minor scars of a brother or sister who love you and just maybe don't know how to respond well. So keep sharing. It's so important that we do the work. I mentioned the study at the beginning of the sermon that was done of those who, were, of those who claimed that doubts were a significant part of their movement away from the faith. A good portion, uh, vastly, the majority of them didn't express those doubts to anyone. They kept them in their own head and they continued to just go over themselves. We need to be those who are willing to approach if you're struggling and you don't know who to talk to, I'd highly commend our, our adult Bible fellowship leaders. We have a whole slew of leaders who, who love to, to be involved in people's lives, who love to walk people through things like this. We have small group leaders. We have elders. We have pastors. We, we have tons of people at this church that would love to wrestle with you. Um, honestly, I think there's no replacement, though, for just developing relationships within the church and being able to share those things with your friends and those people that you have connected to. Be the sort that's sharing those things. Be the sort that approaches. Don't hide them. Second, compassionate church. We need to be compassionate with those who doubt. Correcting but not condemning them, seeking to understand and seeking to listen to well to those who are struggling. Like Christ, we need to be willing to correct, yes, certainly, of course, but with gentleness. Jesus is slow to give a theology lesson to those who are in pain. In general, I think we all have a lot of room to grow in the realm of listening well. In our answers, we need to remember God's word in both his corrections but also in his encouragements and in his comforts. 
And don't feel like you have to know every answer to every doubt. You're certainly not going to know every, every answer to every doubt. So don't try to convince someone that you do. Rather, convince them that you care and that you'll struggle along beside them. If you don't know answers, seek out those answers with them. Be the type of community that struggles together. If you're struggling with doubts, if you're the one who's wrestling, again, I encourage you to express those doubts. But as you express them, be open to that correction, especially biblical correction. Seek out guidance. We need to, we need to seek out God's truth and his word. Too often we leave our, to ourselves to work out like Eve, who, what should she have done in the garden when she faced the temptation from the certain? What should she have done with those doubts? Well, she should have gone back to God and sought him out and asked him, gone back to his word. But instead, what did she do? She did what seemed right in her own eyes. And what was right in her own eyes was that the fruit looked delightful. It looked good. And so she took part in it. We need to be those who are going back to God instead of processing through it on our own. And finally, third point, providing what a person genuinely needs. Church, we need to be confidently pointing people towards Christ because he ultimately is our greatest need. I believe, help my unbelief, right? How often do we meet someone who's someone struggling with doubt and we offer to pray for them, but we don't actually offer to pray with them. Let's be with them as we approach Christ together. Maybe not even one time praying with them. Maybe checking back in and praying with them. Are we willing to genuinely walk this road with someone? For those who are wrestling, what if you went to Christ and said to him, I believe, help my unbelief? What would, hap- what would have happened if Eve had done this herself? I believe, help my unbelief. There is only one person who can fully deal with your doubts, and that is Christ himself. The reality is that oftentimes our good answers, even good answers, won't allay all of your doubts. We have to make a decision in the midst of our doubt like the Father did and cry out for help. So let's be a church that's not afraid of doubts. Let's be a people who, with transparency, go to one another for support. Let's be a people known for compassion, for compassionate responses to one another in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances. Let's be a people driving hard after our greatest need, Jesus. Not like a whitewashed tomb, but as those who are genuinely in need of help with their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray for all of those who are struggling here today with doubt, who are struggling and don't know where to turn. Father, I pray that you would just make the road clear before them. Father, that they would seek out others within your body to help, to wrestle along beside them. Father, that they would would come to you and to your throne seeking out answers, that they would be quick, not just just to continue to process it in their own minds and in their own hearts without ever actually going to the source of truth and the source of understanding and the, the, the one who is authoritative over all things. Father, please just make it clear. Please just give us a path to follow. Please help us to wrestle together. Father, we believe Help our unbelief. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.
Please stand for our benediction. Our benediction this morning comes out of the letter to Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.